0: Everybody. welcome to the I Can't Help You podcast. We are very, very fortunate to be joined by phone today. We have some new high tech technology, high tech technology, that's not exactly it. We have some excellent technology that's allowing us to talk to uh, Dr. Adi Jaffe, a research spe- psychologist, addiction specialist, and founder of Ignited, Lives Beyond Limits, nationally recognized speaker and expert on mental health and stigma. He's appeared on the Dr. Oz Show, Good Morning America, CNN, and now the I Can't Help You podcast. How about yes, that? Yes, I'm adding that <laughs> logo right now to my website. <laughs> okay, and his TEDx talk on shame, which you really need to check out if you haven't already, has been seen by nearly 500,000 people. I think that qualifies as viral or something like that. But Dr. Jaffe, welcome to the program. We're really happy to have you.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, guys.
0: Yeah. So um, I'm really uh, excited to talk to you because, you know, we uh, work a lot out here with various uh, various forms of what people call addiction, certainly. Yep. Um, we uh, I helped start the University of Colorado Recovery Program, and uh, we, we have a program here called AIM House. And um, Beautiful. Thank you. And about 20 years ago or so, when we sort of Said you know when, one of the things that's sort of been a foundation for us is to drop labels and to not talk about labels and I actually run into a lot of resistance from people with that from yeah. time to time so where it's like they people are pretty attached to those labels you know and yeah. uh, so it was really refreshing to to see that in your work and how how important it is to that we are more than our di- quote unquote diagnosis or label or issue or whatever so uh, it's just it's just great to have you here and I appreciate you taking the time for us today.
1: Thank you, thank you so much for having me. And look, I've I've uh, encountered that resistance myself, so it's always nice to speak to somebody who's on uh, on the same side, fighting the same fight. Um, You know, it's the the way I look at it is pretty simple. I'm here to try to save as many people, as many lives from going through a lot of what I've gone through and what I've seen other people go through. So whatever I can do in that process, I'm down
0: that's great well let's start there if you don't mind let's talk a little bit about your story and sure. what brought you to the work if you don't mind
1: yeah sure you know it's funny I uh, when people see me nowadays they have no idea and I think I've sort of crafted that purposefully um, I was sharing about it on my Instagram story yesterday that you know where I was 18 years ago is inconceivable to somebody who knows me now and doesn't know the mm-hmm. story and mm-hmm. uh, and and It wasn't. I didn't know that back then, but now it's a very well crafted um, notion that I put in play on purpose in order to do exactly what we were starting out to talk about, which is make people think differently about addicts. And Mm. you know, um, the the short of it, because I want to get to the to the meat of the work, the short of it is that 18 years ago, uh, you know, in early 2000s, I was. I was a meth addict. I was a meth addict in L.A. I was also selling meth because my drug use had gotten so expensive that I had to start um, selling drugs to support it. And then I found out that I was really good at being a drug dealer. And so I made a good amount of money, sold a lot of drugs, and then used a ton. I mean, I was at the point, at the end, I was at the point where I was easily using an eight ball of meth, which is, you know, for for most people, probably a month's supply every day and I was smoking it and I thought uh, you know, one of the things that I had left over as a gift. I've thrown them out since unfortunately cuz I wish I had them maybe now. But I had these security cameras all over my recording studio, which is where I sold and outside of it because I, you know, in the end I kind of lived like Scarface in a really <laughs> in in the least glam way that you could fathom it really looking. Like if you really look at Scarface at the end of that movie, that is yeah. not a good life, you no. know. Uh, A big fat house with a lot of cocaine that sounds to some people like a win, but then I had to have a gun on me because I had been robbed. Um, So I had security cameras all over the place, and I would literally sit around, get high, and watch the security cameras um, Hmm. for hours as people would come in and buy. And I I watched some of these tapes later, and I would sit on my couch and smoke meth, and then somebody would come in, and I would check the cameras to make sure it's somebody I knew, and I would let them in. And then we would smoke meth together and they would buy some other drugs and we'd hang out for five to 30 minutes. And if it was a girl, maybe we fooled around because that was a big thing for me around drug use. Um, and then they would leave and then I would keep smoking meth all day and then somebody else would walk in. And that was literally, I, I remember watching like an eight-hour tape once and that's all I did. That was my life. And, mm-hmm. um, and you know, it felt... Bleak sometimes, but good at other times, but the bottom line is I, I was so isolated from everybody I knew. I didn't talk to my family anymore. They were in New York. I was in LA. Every single one of my friends was either literally involved in like the sex industry, and I mean by that, you know, call girls and, um, and strip sure. clubs and things like that, or they were drug users that were buying for me, uh, or they were drug dealers. That's it. That's, those are the only people I knew in the world. And um, in 2001, about 10 days before my birthday, I'd been arrested a bunch of times, but two, about 10 days before my birthday. I was riding my motorcycle and I'd just been out delivering some cocaine and I got in an accident. A car hit me and I broke, clean broke my uh, tibia and my fibula. That's your shin bone. And so Mm. for anybody who's ever bumped their shin bone against something and felt like somebody just stabbed them in the neck. um, It's the worst. It's terrible, right? So I cracked both those bones in a split second just on a car and I looked down. I didn't even fall off my bike. I looked down and I see my leg just kind of dangling there and I go, Oh, that's bad. I don't think I don't think my leg's supposed to do that. My shoe was missing. I go, what happened to my shoe? Hmm. I didn't feel any pain yet, but I knew something really bad had happened. And so I very gradually put the bike down. I had to hop off of it on one foot because it was clear that I can put the zero weight on the other leg. Um, and as soon as I hit the ground, cars stopped on all sides of this really big street here in L.A. Um, Olympic, and the most excruciating pain of my life hit me. And I kinda just fell to the ground and all I remember doing from that moment is just screaming obscenities. I'll um I'll save your um your listeners' ears, but you can imagine what I'm screaming, laying there on the ground, and just the worst pain of my life. And yet through all of that pain, I also knew that I was a drug dealer with about a half a pound to a quarter pound of uh, cocaine in my jacket. And so I did what mm. I knew how to do and I've been doing this for five, six, seven years at that point. So I hid it in the lining of my jacket. I pulled out my wallet and my um, my license because I knew a cop was coming. But I was in Beverly Hills and I'd already been arrested in Beverly Hills. So the cops were not all that nice. And what they essentially did was they, um, as, as they were loading me up into the gurney, they grabbed my jacket, took it off of me. And by the time I came to, and this is part of what I talk about in the TED Talk, so I'm sorry, guys, if I'm going to ruin the, the surprise for you guys. By, that, by the time I came to in the hospital, I was handcuffed to a bed with this Yellow note attached to my chest saying that I was under arrest, and a uh, and a cop sitting next to my uh, my bed, just waiting for me to come to. Um, and that became the the starting point for a huge transformation in my life. Um, I'm not gonna tell you that I cleaned up my act right away, but three months after that arrest on a gurney, uh, the SWAT team came to my house and cleaned me out, and then I went to jail. Facing really thirteen to eighteen years in prison it wasn't really clear, but they found a lot of drugs, a lot of drugs in my in my place, and um,
0: and they're getting you for dealing. It was probably pretty obvious, right? Oh, so.
1: I mean, I had when it started out, I had I think fifteen felony counts against me. Ooh. Um, I had a lockpick set. I mean, it's kind of amazing the things that you don't think about when you're living in that life and put you at risk legally. But I had a lockpick set. I had a gun. I had a gun. Next to my bed, right next to all the meth that I was smoking, so drugs and guns together give you additional charges. Um, mm-hmm. I had been selling a lot of MDMA, a lot of ecstasy back in those days, Molly nowadays, um, and so I think they had about seven thousand pills that they found in my house. Um, they found meth pre-made, kind of um, a friend of mine who was again obviously a drug dealer had left over some raw meth, like the the liquid version before he had turned it into crystals, and that was at my house. I mean it's, You know, when when people think of a drug dealer's house getting busted, that's you just picture that in your head and and you'll see kind of what what you imagine it was in my house. But now my leg was broken. I mean, four cops had to carry me to the living room while they're ripping apart my house. And, of course, true to form, sitting there, broken leg um, on my couch in my living room, right under – remember those eight-foot-wide posters you could buy in college? Oh, sure. So I had one of those, a Scarface, right – Above that couch, where I'm sitting got with a the broken image. leg, you got the image yep. in your head. Perfect. Yeah, so, absolutely. So you know, I went classic. <laughs> I really wanted to go classic, and I did it. Um, and then those same four cops carried me to their squad car because I couldn't walk, and they don't let you bring uh, crutches to jail because they can be used as a weapon. So they carried me to jail at a, almost a million dollar bail, seven hundred fifty thousand dollar bail because of the gun and all the other stuff, and I was facing you know close to two decades in prison and. My lawyer said you got to go to rehab. You got to clean up because if you remain looking like this, like a 128 pound meth addict, uh, when you end up in sentencing, you're gonna spend a long time in prison. So I I went to rehab and you know I tell him the story. It didn't work. It was not a linear thing for me. I got kicked out of my first rehab for using, then used for another two straight weeks while essentially homeless and sleeping on friends' couches and in my car. Um, and then I got it, and then it landed. There's a story I tell um, in this kind of free online workshop I have about a call with my dad when I got kicked out of that rehab, and I was I was so ready to lie. I don't know, I don't know how many of you listening right now have struggled yourself, but I was so used to lying to everybody all the time that I had the lies ready and set up. I didn't even have to think about it. Um, yep. I was going to tell him that the rehab was too far for my work. My work, by the way, was my own recording studio where I was doing nothing but just hanging out and playing around with music. Um, but I told him it was too far. I was driving too much. I needed to find a rehab that was closer to it, which is all bullshit. I just got kicked out because I used on New Year's Eve and I used a lot of meth and they found it in my drug test. And um,
0: I mean, it was New Year's Eve, man. You had to. You had to,
1: right? It's funny. <laughs> actually, one of the weirdest pictures I have in my head ever for my drug using days was New Year's Eve. In the middle of the night, knowing that I have to drive back to rehab because I got a night pass. By the way, what rehab gives a night pass on New Year's Eve? But anyway.
0: Yeah, that's what I was just thinking, but okay. It's
1: like a setup, right? It, it's a, it's a total setup. So I'm sitting there at this party, and all these people that used to buy from me, I'd sold them all ecstasy because I was still kind of selling on the side. And um, they're all at this party doing ecstasy, rubbing each other, massaging each other. I think people are like, having sex in the corner. And I'm high on meth in the corner by myself thinking – I'm kind of bored and I remember realizing in that moment that something had broken right like Mm. I'm facing decades in prison I'm at a party on New Year's Eve bored out of my mind high like there's no tomorrow and all these people are looking like they're having fun and I just don't want any part of it I I mean it was broken something was really deeply broken and um, Mm. I decided not to lie to my dad on that phone call when my dad when I was telling him the lie I stopped in the middle of the telling him the story and I said you know what I got kicked out I got kicked out because they found me using and he blew up at me but it felt so good to not be lying to him because for the first time Mm -hmm. in my life and maybe in 12 years at that point they knew the truth right they knew I was selling drugs they knew I was arrested Mm -hmm. they knew everything and then I was about to start lying again and so told him the truth he screamed at me You know, at the end he was saying, what do you want us to do? What do you expect? You just threw away three months. You're going to go to prison forever. What what do you want me to do? And I said, you can't do anything. I've got to do this, man. I have to figure this out on my own. Hmm. And that started this road. And it started this road of me really straightening my life out. Again, when I was talking about this on my story yesterday, I never would have imagined... I mean, you could have promised me the world for this bet. Are you going to be Hmm. on a phone call with um, a podcast talking about addiction and how to help people 18 years from now, and I would have gambled the house against it. Um, Mm. Up until that point, I'd proven nothing. I was a loser. I barely graduated college, like barely by the skin of my teeth, and all I could really do was just get through to the next day, and that's what I did. You know, I got through to the next day and got eight months sober before I went to jail, then I did a year in jail, and then I went out and just tried to slowly cobble a life for
0: myself and... And it up here. That is that is amazing. I, I think what, one of the things that strikes me about what you're saying, and I think there's there's a moment. You know, in some forms of recovery, people call it a moment of clarity. I'm not so sure about that. I I think I'm 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 someone who you know is in recovery long term as well. I I don't. There was a moment that happened. Where there were several moments that happened where I was like, "Oh, my life is messed up, right?" and and I know I need help, yeah. but that that doesn't mean I was ready to tell the truth yet because mm-hmm. I was still lying to myself. And so I had I had many I feel like moments this, of clarity. Yeah, but then there's this moment that it sounds like happened for you at that party and me happened in another story, but where basically we can't lie to ourselves anymore. Like there's no like I can't even not even in a bad way, just I can't buy my story and my story is no longer valid yeah. because I want something different. And, you know, it's, it's, it's painful, but it's also liberating when that moment happens because there's nothing left to lose in a sense, you know? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I mean,
1: for me at least, I think that happened a whole number of times. And then at yeah. some point I became, I don't want to say even willing, but at some point I started listening to it more than trying to push it away. Um, Mm. You know, I would have – so in my recording studio, I, I, I'll i never forget this, but I painted the whole inside of it black. I was very – Nine Inch Nails and all that kind of stuff was my jam back then. And um, on one side of the room, I had a red spotlight and on the other side, I had a blue spotlight. And I could almost feel the shift in the mood when I was in one side of the room versus another. But I would catch myself – not frequently because I was always surrounded by people on purpose because I didn't want to listen to the voices in my own head. But mm. – when it would be quiet, maybe four o'clock in the morning, and everybody was gone or passed out, and I'd be sitting on that couch under that red light, and just thinking to myself, "What the fuck happened? Um, mm. How did I end up here? I don't understand." You know, my dad was a physician, my mom was a human resource manager in a bank. Like becoming a meth dealer in L.A. was not even on the bookshelf. You know, it wasn't even right. It wasn't even it was pretty option. unlikely. Yeah, and. Yeah. Somehow I ended up in that place and it was it was scary, but I did my best and I had a lot of tools, right? I had meth, I had K, I had GHB, I had ecstasy, I had cocaine. Um, I had a lot of tools to forget those thoughts and at some point, I think what you're saying and I agree, that voice got too loud for me to ignore it and thank God that I hadn't pushed my family enough... To the point where they weren't help, willing to help me and that I hadn't burned all the bridges in the world so that when I made the decision to shift, I still had opportunities to.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So 12 step is not your thing, right? Like you're not into 12 step. Tell me, tell me a little bit about sort of your approach, sure. both for yourself and working with others in relation to. To recovery. Absolutely. And I use the word rec- recovery because I don't know if there is a better word necessarily, <laughs> even though I don't love the word sometimes.
1: Well, you know, it's kind of the problem with a lot of these words, as you talked about labels, is when you say recovery for a lot of people now, they think 12-step right away. Um, right. And, and that's not what it means, right? Recovery means, right. I mean, if you look at SAMHSA's definition, for instance, it's a process of self-discovery and, and self-improvement where you create a life that is purposeful and 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 positive. Living to your potential and
0: living up to a potential in yourself. Exactly. And so look,
1: I I think this is actually maybe a good form to clear this up. I'm not anti 12 step at all. What I am anti is 12 step being the only version of recovery people are presented with. And Amen. I'm totally with you. So I've zero, look, I have a lot of great friends in 12 step groups. Actually my wife and I still go to a meeting that is technically a 12 step, uh, recovering couples group every Mm -hmm. Sunday or or Mm -hmm. almost every Sunday now. But when we've been going through it for nine years, we read the steps in the beginning. There are parts of it that I hate, honestly, like the how it works passage. I wish somebody would just rewrite that thing. Um, There's so much blame in that thing. It's annoying. But, um, But I respect the process and I respect the millions of lives that have been affected by it. Here's the issue I have when somebody gets arrested or needs help. That is the only option they're presented. And just what we know from research and from personal experiences, everybody knows this, is um, that a lot of people resist and they don't want it. And when people don't want an approach, and you can argue with mm-hmm. me about this and I'm, I'm okay with the debate. When people don't want an approach, there is less of a probability that it will work for them. And so why not mm-hmm. give people options? I mean, whether that's mm-hmm. smart recovery, whether that's ignited recovery that I created, whether it's SOS. um, just give them a menu That's huge.
0: Yeah. and yeah. let them pick yeah. because
1: we know from research that when people pick 12 steps willfully and um, and through their own self-agency, they are more likely to engage and more likely to get the benefit. I mean substantially more likely. And so I just want to create a world where there are a couple of dozen options. Like if imagine if you went to a restaurant. Let's say – Let's make twelve step the best steak that has ever existed. I don't think it is, but let's mm-hmm. make it that. And you we went to a restaurant, and every day they said, "Cool, um, here's the steak." You know mm. that not everybody wants that, and so why are we? We don't do that in every other any other area of life. And my whole purpose in my move about changing the recovery movement is, um, let's give people options. Obviously, mm-hmm. as I wrote in the Abstinence Smith book that I just published, I think one of the options should be allowing people to seek help, even if they're not ready to quit or don't want to quit. I think that should be an option for people, and we don't offer enough of those. But yeah, I'm not anti-12-step. I'm i pro everything. If yoga is your thing, if Buddha is your thing, whatever gets you to not live the kind of life that I was living and the kind of life you're living if you're struggling right now, amen.
0: Mm-hmm. What... What worked, quote unquote, for you? I'm not trying to put it in a box, sure. but I'm trying to help people understand that there are different methods and there are different ways to approach this. For you, you got out of jail, you cobblestoned a life back together. What what worked for you? How did that happen?
1: Great. So here, first of all, again, let me give credit where credit's due, right? I got sober in 12-step rooms. Um, now, it didn't work the first time I tried it because I didn't, I you know, I, I wasn't, Intentional about it. I didn't really know what I was doing. The second time I went back, it's not like somebody gave me options. The only options that were available were 12 step based recovery places. This is in 2001. There was nothing else. Um, mm-hmm. And so I went to a regular, highly structured, sober living place that took us to meetings every day. But at that mm-hmm. point, I was willing and I was ready. So I don't think that's the only thing that would have worked for me, but it is what works for me at that moment. And so that was good. Mm-hmm. Got sober for eight mm-hmm. months, stayed in. Um, You know, stayed sober for that year in jail, got out and was still in the program. And then I went to graduate school and I went to graduate school because I couldn't get a job. Not Mm -hmm. a surprise to anybody who's ever been convicted of a felony, but that freaking checkbox, man. Um, Nobody thinks about it unless you've been convicted of a felony and everybody who's ever had a felony understands the weight of checking that Mm -hmm. box. Have you ever been convicted of a felony? Nobody would call Mm -hmm. me back, right? And I'm going to say this understanding the weight of it. I'm a upper middle class white dude and I couldn't get hired right. with felonies. Right. And so I understand, and I understood back then, the weight of criminal justice mm. involvement for people who mm. are not upper middle class white dudes. Um, mm-hmm. It is heavy. I'm, I tried for six to nine months, I tried to get a job. If my family didn't support me, I would be drug dealing back then again because I had no way of supporting myself. Nine mm-hmm. months into it, I gave up the, the effort and I, um, I went back to school because Cal State, Long Beach, he meant to the beach. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. They didn't ask the question, have you ever been convicted of a felony? And Mm -hmm. I got in. I did really, really well and I started – I didn't know it but my advisor at the time, Dr. Dennis Fisher, who I still keep in touch with, um, he was studying HIV and hepatitis C and a lot of the people we worked with were drug addicts and so I started talking to a lot of drug addicts, doing research with them and uh, I fell in love, man. I – all of a sudden, I went, this is what I need to do. I need to study this thing and to help people end up in a better place. And mm-hmm. as I started studying it, I started saying to myself, I don't think I'm one of these addicts I've been hearing about for the last two to three years, which is blasphemy in 12-step rooms, right? That's your denial. That's your disease talking, all that stuff. Your ego. Yeah, all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. And I, yeah. I went through a six-month process of talking to my sponsor, talking to my parents, talking to my girlfriend at the time, and really creating a different plan um, with a lot of safeguards. It was funny. I, I remember telling my parents, don't wait until I'm using drugs again. You're going to know that I need help if I, if this experiment doesn't work well if I just turn into an asshole, period. Like <laughs> if I don't return your calls, if when you text me I'm not right there, if I'm not available and I start acting weird, this experiment failed. Do not wait until I'm arrested again. That's, that's not wh- how this needs to go. Um, so we put all those things in play. And I remember the first time I took another drink, uh, I took a sip from my girlfriend's champagne on a Saturday as we were sitting kind of overlooking the beach in Hermosa Beach in, uh, in California. So at least a beautiful way to introduce that first drink. But I literally had one sip and I sat back because I thought, you know, based on what I heard, maybe tomorrow I'm back smoking meth. I mean, it was really scary for me. Um, but the good news for everybody listening, it is now 12 years later, 12, 13, 13 or 14 years later and um, I'm good you know went out had two drinks with friends yesterday feel a little more tired today than I would have I mean I drink socially now um, and you know probably a couple of times a week and what I started doing from that moment on is I started really studying questioning and trying to understand how does addiction form what works for addiction and and how can people recover and when I was doing research one of the things that I uncovered was that there are a lot of people who, I'm not going to say were like me because I was very abstinent-minded when I started the journey, but people who wanted help, they wanted recovery, they wanted their life to get better, they just weren't ready to quit. And Hmm. that led me down this weird path that up until that moment, it was like, it was almost like a hidden hallway or a hidden path that you're not supposed to find out. And that was this whole harm reduction movement. And uh, for the last... I would say maybe seven years from research I did at UCLA, looking at why people don't enter treatment, all the way to my own life, the rehab that I used to run, and Ignited Recovery, which is the online program I run now. My goal and what works for me is addressing people's underlying issues, and that means a lot of different things. There are biological issues, their are psychological issues, their are environmental pressures and family issues, uh, and also their spirituality and purpose, and helping them address those instead of addressing their addictive behavior. Because what I find is if I can really get to that, if I can help somebody resolve their underlying issues, like I've resolved many of mine, not all, but many of mine, then the addiction becomes an afterthought. It becomes a, um, a phase instead of a lifelong struggle.
0: Do you think that that's true for everybody or do you feel like that's just true for your experience mm-hmm. and some others that you've worked That's with? a good question.
1: Um, Look, I don't think anything is true for everybody. So when I uh, when re- I write in the book, in the abstinence myth, I don't think addiction is actually one thing at all. I think it's a name we have given. That's why I call it a syndrome instead of a disease. It's a name we've given a bunch of symptoms that show up together. People engaging in a compulsive behavior or a substance use in a way that hurts their life, makes other people around them unhappy, and has real-life consequences in terms of their health and well-being, and that they're unable to stop even as those uh, consequences mount. So when those symptoms show up, we give it this name, and that's back to the label that we talked about before. We call it addiction, but addiction is not one thing. So Mm. for people who have, you know, I talk about psychology, biology, environment, and spirituality. For people who have a lot of problems, issues across all four of those factors, what I just presented is a much more difficult journey. Um, if your biological system is highly dysregulated, what do I mean by that? I mean uh, type 1 bipolar that you know was schizoaffective um, symptoms that make it difficult to regulate emotions and stay grounded in reality, let's say. And you've had early sexual trauma and uh, sexual abuse and physical abuse. And you live in an environment where a lot of people are unemployed and using a lot of substances and you've been disconnected from any higher purpose of any sort, so all four factors are really hard for you, then yeah, you know, engaging in any escapism is going to be a difficult thing for you if you want to right the ship. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line is I meet people who have a lot of biological risk but almost no psychological risk, and their environmental risk is really low. And so, yeah, for them, maybe it can work if they regulate their biology. I meet people who, once they overcome their early life trauma – and do a little cognitive behavioral therapy and change their belief structure and how they look at the world, it's literally as if their addiction never existed. And mm. I, what I try to do now, and that's what I love about Ignited Recovery, is I try not to assume on the front end that because other people call the person in front of me an addict or an alcoholic, that I know anything about mm-hmm. them. Mm. And if I can do mm-hmm. that, then I'll tell you I've seen I mean miracle stories, and I can share some if you want, but I've seen miracle stories where people walk in, and to anybody in the world, other than maybe a handful of people like Andrew Tatarski and Stan Peel and some of the other people who are doing this sort of work, they look like stereotypical, bottom-of-the-barrel kind of addicts. And a year or two later, you wouldn't even recognize that it it's the same person. So I've seen miracles happen, and mm-hmm. therefore I stopped – Assuming that I know on the front end what somebody's outcome is going to be, and my job is just to hold their hand and guide them.
0: So, do you? I, I have to imagine you meet a lot of resistance from people who have. <laughs> That's an. Underst- <laughs> I don't want to say that That's I don't want to say they have voodoo dolls of you, but I'm just kind of guessing that there are people out there, especially in LA. Um, who are like wow this guy's killing people by his assumptions that he can you know it's it's abstinence or someone's gonna die every single time are you up against that quite a bit all the time
1: we did an episode on the doctors about the book and i got a call it's funny i didn't tell the caller that it was me but it was like seven o'clock in the morning over here so i'm making breakfast for my kids and it's amazing sometimes how disconnected people are from what my life actually looks like they i don't i don't understand what they think i live like but you know kids I got a family I take care of my clients like this is my life but she yeah. called and said does this doc does this PhD Jaffe have an email and I could just tell it was one of those because I've gotten <laughs> I've gotten people telling me you know cussing me out and screaming at me on the phone before um, mostly they do it just online on Facebook though and so I said yeah sure um, here's the best email for us it's info at ignited.com by the way anybody listening right now that's a great email for us info at Igntd.com and she never actually sent an email, by the way, but I get I get people telling me that all the time. And if you don't mind, I think I have the best answer I could ever fathom giving to that. And that is we know what the system is currently, right? It is pretty clear to anybody else listening, that's why they get so mad at me, that the only way to beat addiction is to quit, right? Like, if you ask anybody on the street, they know that that's the answer. Cool. So we know that that's the answer. And yet, every year, more people die from addiction. Every Mm -hmm. single year. Like, we've been tracking it for about 25, 30 years. And if you look at the trend, it's just a linear line up. Yeah, fentanyl has made it Mm -hmm. worse in the last five years. But it's Mm -hmm. been increasing always. And then you look at another statistic, which is about 90%. We're doing a little better now. It seems like it's about 86% of people who have struggles with addictions don't even mm-hmm. go and get help, any help, any professional help around it. So mm. if more people are dying every year and almost 90% mm-hmm. of people who struggle with the problem won't go and get the help we have right now, I, f- I believe it's mm-hmm. my duty to give them other options. Mm-hmm. Because here's mm-hmm. the, the false assumption that people who make those arguments make. And that is if somebody doesn't find my system, that they're going to walk into – some abstinence-based whatever and get fixed. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that's mm-hmm. not the world we actually live in. The world we live mm-hmm. in is the people who come to me are the people who have either tried those methods before because I get a lot of those or people who won't try those methods because they don't speak to them. And it is my mm-hmm. duty to offer them something else. And the notion, you know, there's this line in, um, in 12 Step in, uh, in the book, half measures availed us nothing, right? I Mm -hmm. I call such bullshit. Um, Half measures are everything. Every single person who has gotten to the point of reading that passage in AA has tried other things. They've tried cutting down. They've tried doing all these other things. And the point is that is their journey. You gradually get to your end point. And I, by the way, consider it a great success when people come to Ignited wanting to, and I'm doing air quotes around this, cut down because a lot of people just want to cut down. But then a month and a half, two months, four months into the work, they come to me and they say, you know, I'm just going to quit. I'm going to – I'm not going to try to cut down anymore.
0: To me – Do you think that's because the shame goes away? Do you think it's because they're not ashamed to say it that the likelihood of them coming to that conclusion, if that's where they need to be – is more likely to happen because they were able to over time continue doing it and see for themselves or have that moment like you and i were talking about yeah well i Um, think what what do you attribute that yeah well first of all i think they found somebody who accepts
1: them and a system that -hmm. doesn't judge them so they get to calm down for a minute that's how it starts Mm -hmm. and then once they start to calm Mm -hmm. down they can stop lying to me and to other people and to themselves that's a lot of what i deal with with people is they've been lying to everybody around them for so long Not because they want to, but because if they shared their truth, everybody would have one answer, which is, well, you got to quit and you got to go to rehab and you got to go to 12-step meetings or AA or whatever. And they've either tried it or they don't want it. And so they just don't share their truth because if they did, they know the answer that they would get. And we walk them gradually. I mean, it's a beautiful thing. We do this live Tuesday chat every Tuesday for all the course participants. And... These things that we are told all the time cannot happen happen all the time. I have a meth addict on the course right now who has cut down her meth use by ninety percent. Is that abstinence? No. But would I rather she use ten percent of what she used to use th- seven months ago? Of course. Um, she still can't bring herself to tell her partner and a lot of other people in her life about her use because she is that ashamed. But if I'm able to take somebody down the road of reducing their use by ninety percent, I'll take that any day of the week and. I think you're right. What happens is they kind of settle into themselves. And as you can start seeing yourself more honestly and being around a group of people who reflects that back to you in an honest way because you don't have to lie to them, you start making better decisions. And look, we also know you've been in recovery for a while. There are a lot of people who commit to abstinence but then have a really hard time maintaining it, right? Mm -hmm. Just because you committed to abstinence doesn't mean it's going to be a straight shot either. So I've seen... People who want to moderate quit. I've seen people who want to quit successfully moderate, and I've seen everything in between. And I just think we need to get out of their way a little bit and help people. I got into this to help. And so I want to guide people towards their own victory, not enforce my version of it on them. And, you know, again, I, I totally understand why those people struggle. The people who say I'm going to kill is because... Abstinence feels really safe, right? If a heroin user it's, never uses again, they won't die. But the problem is that heroin users probably not going to treatment because they don't want it, and so they might die on the street because you didn't offer them something else.
0: Well, the thing the thing I think that, one of the things that you're speaking to, and then I, and then I wanna just talk a little bit about, and I wanna respect your time, but I wanna talk a little bit about your approach sure. and sort of the, the how it works with within what you're doing. Um, but basically, yeah, you know, I think I think the, the what it ignores is that you know you might say okay for this percentage of people who abstinence works and and a certain path that includes years and years of no mind altering substances whatsoever. Right like, awesome. If your life is happy, and it's good, and it's fulfilling, and you have some, you know, all the things you mentioned, if your life is good, and you're feeling free, that's fantastic. Like, that's wonderful. That's great. What that's ignoring is the other 90% of people <laughs> who continually struggle, go deeper into a hole or die out of shame and, you know, the inability to, to, to access help in a way that is on a harm reduction scale. But I think that Including for myself, like what is harm reduction? Is mm-hmm. it basically being able to talk about? I guess I don't. I don't have a clear, real clear that's understanding great, of it. Can you help? Yeah, me Yeah. That? So
1: that's a great question. My ex partner actually wrote a really good article about this, Doctor Kern. I hope it's available somewhere. We wrote it a while ago. Um, look, harm reduction, at its most basic level, is any intervention that aims to reduce the consequences and the risk associated with a behavior. So you engage in harm reduction all day, right? You put a seatbelt on when you drive. Well, that's mm-hmm. yeah. harm reduction right because cars kill people i don't know if you know that or not but cars kill people every day all over the world um more people die from cars and uh, a lot of other drugs by the way and yet we drive every day just because cars kill people doesn't mean that we stop driving we mitigate the risk so we have airbags that's a harm reduction method uh we have seatbelts there are ways to reduce the harm associated with the behavior because if you get in a crash you are more likely to survive if you wear a seatbelt right so mm-hmm. that's in regular everyday life. Uh, we have sprinklers, right, on uh, in houses because if you get, have a fire, the way to reduce the harm associated with a fire is to pour water on it. So we have automated systems to do that.
0: And it doesn't mean you're pro-fire. It doesn't mean you're pro-fire exactly. because you have sprinklers. You're not, and- you're not, like, yeah.
1: you're not saying... <laughs> I just can't wait for a fire to come burn down my house because I will get to beat it with the sprinklers. That is not the message. Just like I'm enabling fire because I have sprinklers. in And my by house. the way, that you know what I love about this point is there are people, right? We know this that there are people who kind of actually do get this excitement and use seatbelts and airbags as a way to get into accidents because the rush of the accident. That does happen, rarely, incredibly rarely, but it happens. But just because that happens, we don't take seatbelts out of cars and say, hey, we don't want to. We don't want to. Um, you know, encourage people to use seatbelts in inappropriate ways. Around drug use, you can do the exact same thing. So the harm reduction methods most people are aware of are things like needle exchanges and things like that, right? So giving heroin users a needle uh, that is clean so that they don't get hepatitis C or HIV by using a needle from somebody else who is infected would be a harm reduction method. Why? Because you're not addressing their substance use per se, you're addressing the consequences. But then there are a lot of use specific kind of harm reduction method so medication assisted treatment for instance can count as harm reduction why because you are giving somebody let's say an opiate addict you're giving them another opiate that lasts longer so that they can take it once a day instead of having to do it four five six seven eight times a day and by doing that every morning they can go get a job and live with their family and not have to be out on the run all the time so that would be a harm reduction method um, Got now, and ha- sorry, real quick. Um, now, Trexone for this is a tool for everybody who's listening right now. Now, Trexone for alcohol would be a harm reduction method. It doesn't, it hasn't mm-hmm. been shown to get people to quit necessarily, although over a long time using something like the Sinclair method, some people quit. But it seems to be pretty effective for about 30 to 40 percent of the people that I've seen use it at greatly reducing their alcohol use. So, that would be a harm reduction method. Mm
0: hmm. Mm hmm. What about your, tell me a little bit about Ignite. Tell me how does it work? So somebody wants to get in, they're interested in what you're doing and they want to be part of it. Tell tell me what what they can expect from being part of Ignite. Absolutely. So I'm holding a book in my hand, but you can't see that because I'm talking. So I wrote a book called The Absinence Myth. Um,
1: It lays out the principles if anybody is interested and wants to see more.
0: Lauren, Lauren's holding it, so I actually can. Oh, look that's at amazing! Right look now. at that. Um, now, yeah, and she has sticky. Now I'm going to tell you, Lauren has <laughs> sticky notes all over your I book. Lauren, can you say hello to Dr. Jaffe without <laughs> without crying? Hi, Dr. How, how you doing, Lauren? I'm I'm doing well. How are you? I'm I'm
1: great. I'm great. And I again, a thank you for buying the book. B for the support and, and getting this message out. You know, if we talk about what's in the the Absent Smith, the point that I make in the book is clear and it's i it's not the end all be all of everything but it is this nobody got into addiction just for the fuck of it you know i'm going to be really blunt when i have this conversation nobody you know that whole thing of nobody uh, ever grew up saying i want to be a junkie or whatever when i when i'm older that is isn't true but the point that we miss in there is something along the line created a situation where using a plethora of substances or a lot of a single substance or a behavior that you escape through made sense because it provided mm. protection. And the problem, and the reason I call the book The Abstinence Myth is the myth that we have created is that quitting that behavior will make your life better. Mm. It's not true. What will make your life better is resolving the issues because of which you started using. And Ignited Recovery is about that. The reason it's called Ignited and the company I created is called Ignited is the point is to unravel... You know, untangle, resolve and clear the shame around some of these issues that have been there forever and then find a new direction in life. There's a story. I think I tell it in this book. There's too many stories (laughs) in my life at this point. But um, in the first real conference I went to in grad school, I sat next to a woman who at the time headed Massachusetts Health and Human Services uh, Programme. And she said something that stayed with me for years because I was talking to her about the fact that I study addiction and she was talking to me about she was studying obesity uh, at the time over there and focusing on that but she said, you know what we learned over she had been in the field for 50 years. Over 50 years, What well, we've learned in prevention research and I said, no, what? Because I want to learn and she said, we learned that we are terrible at getting people to stop mm-hmm. doing anything but we are much, much better at getting them to do something mm-hmm. else instead. And What ignited Recovery does is it gets you to stop focusing on your substance use and gets you to start focusing on your life and what it is that you want to change about your life because if you start changing that systematically, the substance use will change as well. And so there's a nine-step program in there that um, follows three principles. Maybe I'll go over the principles more than anything else here. But the first one is the principle of honest exploration and that is where in an honest, accepting way, we start talking about what are your causes for your addictive behavior? What is what is your biological dysregulation like? What trauma did you go through? How do you look at the world? What environmental pressures do you have, right? Is your husband coming home every day and, um, and you feel really alienated and he's angry and stressed out, so you drink in order to resolve that and you've been doing that for 15 years? That would be an environmental and psychological pressure. What is your spiritual... Um, standing like. And we, we really do a breakdown of all the causes. The next piece is um, is radical acceptance. I think it's impossible to move forward in a constructive way if you feel that you're a bad person. If you, if you shame yourself, and here's where the label thing that we talked about from the beginning, if you constantly live in a place of shame, it's going to be hard to move forward in a constructive way. That's a mm-hmm. core belief of mine. And so, one of the things we need to do is after we uncover everything that's gone on in your life, We need to accept it. This is your starting point. This is where you are right now. And you need to be okay with it. I don't care how terrible it is, right? I mean, some of my clients, when I listen to their stories, it makes me want to cry because I can't believe they've even survived them, let alone got to the point where they're here seeking help. You know, early life sexual abuse by family members that is then turned around on them and they get ostracized from their family and get kicked out and get into foster systems. I mean, it's, Insane what some people have been through. But we can't erase it. So all we get to do is accept it and sit in it and be okay with it. And once we're there, we move into the third. And that's a lot of my job on on Ignited Recovery is to help people accept it. Once we're there, we can move into what I call individualized transformation. And that is building your toolkit. Once you know what it is that you come to the table with, we need to start finding tools for you to be able to address it. If it's trauma, then that's you know probably... Therapy and maybe exposure work and EMDR or, you know, um, biofeedback or something like that. Maybe you need some medication, you know, mindfulness, meditation, yoga. I mean, we just kind of start putting the pieces together, but I don't think you can even put the pieces together for a lot of people until they get to a place where they really understand Mm -hmm. what they're dealing with not the alcohol or the sex addiction or the food Mm -hmm. or the porn, but rather the real struggle, right? The thing that I always used to say to people, like, when you go to sleep at night and the thoughts are racing in your hand, if you are mm-hmm. sober, what is it that's going through your head? That's the stuff mm-hmm. we've got to resolve. And so, Ignited Recovery walks people through a program that helps them uncover th- those things, accept them, and then resolve them. And um, uh, it is it is so beautiful to watch as people go through this transformation and, um, and just live a life, kind of like what I'm going through right now, right? Live a life six months, a year, a year and a half after starting this process that they never even imagined was possible because what they were told before they started working with me was that they have this sickness that is gonna be there forever and there's no Mm. way to fix it. Mm. And so, yeah, it's beautiful. Well,
0: that's great. And um, do you ever find within that process that some people are using so much that they cannot see some of those core issues? Does that ever come up? Yeah. Yeah.
1: No, absolutely. I have a client right now who's, uh, man, weed for 18 years, every day, all day. And um, I know people argue, and you're in Colorado, so people argue, um, you guys have been going this through this for a little while, whether weed can be harmful. I mean, anything can be harmful if you rely that on it too much. Sure. And, um, and this guy struggles. Why? Because every time there's the slightest discomfort in his life, he goes to weed. Even though weed doesn't make him feel all that much better, he gets anxious and weird around people but it's been his coping strategy for literally 18 years so yes um absolutely it can be difficult again the how do i say this the the issue is that you still need to find a way to engage the Mm -hmm. client in a manner that they will engage in and not run Mm -hmm. away from right so um ideally sure, like let's say for that client I was just talking about, I would put him somewhere for sixty to ninety days so that the weed would be out of his system and then I could really mm-hmm. start the work. Mm-hmm. Um but he wouldn't do it.
0: Yeah, it's uh it sometimes just having that that clear you know, that the inability to use those substances for a period of time, whether that's through jail or something else can provide an opportunity to see something that's otherwise kind of being numbed out. But what I completely agree with what you're saying is that radical acceptance is kind of at the foundation of that regardless, right? Like well, it, it's, yeah. and that's the part where we, because of the stigma and all these other pieces and Hey, you know, the other thing I want to say, cause I'm, I guarantee you I'll, and some of my some of my friends, just like you, are in the treatment business, and you know, abstinence only or twelve step is the only way, and you're lying to yourself if not. I don't view recovery that way, neither for myself nor for many many people that I've actually worked with and seen do do well and and live great lives. So I'm enjoying mm-hmm. hearing what you're what you're saying. I think the problem that we run into is this duality and this black and white bullshit, where it's like it's oh, it's either totally. this or it's that, or so I'm going to now argue with this because my belief system supports that. And that's, you know what, that's dogmatic religious shit as far as I'm concerned. That's like saying there's one way to the kingdom, there's only one way to get there, and if you don't, ha- totally you know, agree. if you don't happen to even have access to that, if you happen to live in a place where you didn't have information about that religion, you're still going to hell or something. Like, it's insane.
1: So <laughs> That's amazing. I love you know, that.
0: So I, I look at it like that. But it, And the other thing I'd say is that, hey, man, if, you know, you're hitting it out of the park at an 85 90% success rate in your treatment program, in any of our treatment programs around Abstinence only, then my hat's off to you. I'm going to pay attention to what you're doing. But the last I checked, we're all hanging in there around the same type of odds when it comes to abstinence. Yeah. And so, therefore, we do owe it to have a variety of different, ac- you know, access points and and to be able to allow for conversation to evolve and to have a larger breadth and maybe to look at it as we, you know, we're recovering human beings and 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 if yeah. we're recovering. As far as I'm concerned, what we're recovering is who we truly are. We're not recovering some mythological, you know, version of ourselves. We're some improved mm. version. We're not self improvement projects. We're humans, you know.
1: Right. And, uh, oh, there's. I mean, there's so many things to unpack there, man. First of all, I talk about that war that you're that you're mentioning um, in the book. It's the dumbest thing I've ever. I don't understand, like it's so crazy to me that all the professionals in this field are fighting each other about what is right and what is wrong instead of what I'm picturing in my head. And this is part of the reason why I wanted to do this is a situation where we all do our thing. We all do what we're good at. And if somebody tries our thing and it doesn't work for them, we go, Hey, this other guy is doing this really other amazing thing over there. Mm-hmm. Why don't you go check him out? Cause mm-hmm. he's great at what he does. Mm-hmm. And then they try that person's thing. And maybe that is 12 step or maybe it's yoga whatever and then or or, Ibogaine or ayahuasca whatever like they go to try the next thing and then we walk them through options because in the end if we're honest about it and what we want is to help them you know again in aa right expecting uh what is it, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results guess what guys that also applies to going to go <laughs> aa meetings every yeah. day <laughs> for years and not getting sober, maybe it's not the right fucking approach. Right? Maybe you should. Maybe your job is to help guide that person to something else. Maybe that's therapy. Maybe it's medication. One of the things that pisses me off the most, by the way, is when um, sponsors get people off of medication as if they have any expertise or specialty in medicine whatsoever. And I'm not saying the medication is not overprescribed sometimes. That's not the thing. But you know, stay in your fucking lane, right? Like mm-hmm. people have died because they got told to get off of antidepressants mm-hmm. or, or um, medication-assisted treatment and then they overdosed or killed themselves. Mm-hmm. So I think we all need to stay in our lane. I am not a psychiatrist and it's not my job to prescribe medication. Um, but that means I should find psychiatrists that are in my wheelhouse mm-hmm. and work along with them, mm-hmm. not start talking shit about medication because it's not my thing. And in the same exact way, I can't wait for the day, and I know, by the way, just to be clear, I know people in 12-step who do exactly what I'm about to say. This, this is not an overarching statement, right? but I can't wait for the day where everybody in 12-step says, this is our thing. If you like it, come on in, which is how it's supposed to be, by the way. Right. If you don't, here are all these other options. Here's a referral list for all the other things you can do. If we can get to a place like that one day, mm-hmm. I can almost guarantee we will finally turn the tide on um, on these deaths. We will finally be able to turn the curve the other way because instead of people dying in their seventh rehab episode, they will have found something else that works for them. They will feel like they are connected and the war will finally stop.
0: Love it. Love it. Um, I could go on with this conversation all day. Will you come back on again some point? I'd love to, man. This was great. That is great. And tell me a little bit more. What's your website? Just so people can learn more about you. Sure. So the company
1: name is ignited. I G N T D. And, um, I don't know. It, I, it felt like it was a good idea to take some vowels out, but now I, get, I realize well, I'm, conf- <laughs> I'm confusing the crap out of everybody. They're like, IGENT? What is this thing? Ignite? Um, ignite. Ignit. Yes, I'm ignite uh, sometimes. That's <laughs> true. So ignited IGNTD.com is one of the main web- websites. And if you go there, you'll see our recovery courses, our relationship courses, and all that kind of stuff. I do really fun stuff with my wife around relationships. I, had, I struggled with sex addiction as well. And so when we came on the other side of that, my wife and I started helping couples struggle with relationship issues so we have a course on that as well and we will do more there Um, that's the easiest place there's also a website now finally up. people have been telling me for a decade to put this thing up adijaffi.com is now an actual website it feels so ridiculously self indulgent to have a website with my name on it but um, it exists because everybody told me that I'm an idiot for not having it so adijaffi.com is another website and there you'll find about the podcast I do with my wife um, and my recovery podcast and the book and all the other fun stuff.
0: That's fantastic. I really, really appreciate it, and um, would love to be on your podcast sometime. I'm still waiting for someone yes. to invite me on theirs, and that can answer questions instead of the guys sitting here. But I Let's appreciate do it, man. it. All right, man, for sure. And uh, really appreciate it. Say hello to Los Angeles for me. Really appreciate you being there and 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 offering this perspective for us. Thank you for the work that you're doing out there. Uh, Thank you. And, Thank uh, you for having me. D- Absolutely. Just want to thank everybody else. Uh, this has been the I Can't Help You podcast. Thank you to Justin over here at the board and setting up our phone system, which is hopefully working really well. Um, Lauren for booking this. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, we're at thank the Made Life Studios. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. On social media, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter, same tag, at I Can't Help You Pod. You can find us on iTunes And if you have any questions or any comments, email us at help at icanthelpy.org. Thanks.